for me, dramaturgy, the sort of idea of it, is about the relationship between the text and time and space in production. So effectively, it's the rhythm of the production and the rhythm of your of how your attention is held. So it's sort of, it, yeah, it's, for me, it's very much about the kind of about space and time um, and how the text uh, suggests how the characters relate to one another and relate to the audience um, and and then how from that you might build the idea of a production and then from the idea of the production that you want to make how you build a rehearsal process that's going to enable you to to realise that. So partly the reason to perhaps to have a dramaturg at all, because I think dramaturgy always happens, you know, in a sense that's obvious, um, and often it happens in, a, in, in the relationship between the director and the designer, and the director and, and perhaps an assistant director. I mean, Jeff's, Jeff James, who's assistant on this, is very much also a, a creative collaborator. Um, that, um, that, that process happens, but with a play like Edward II that's very complex, um, but also quite unfamiliar in its form, then those, com those sort of conversations, I think we've been working on it for about eight months. We start by looking at the text and thinking about the themes of the play, thinking about what it is that seems to be at the heart, at the core of the play, what the, what the kind of pulse of it is. Um, and thinking about the nature of the characters, um, thinking about the what we're excited to express, um, but then then it's also about kind of creating a, a, a sort of framework for a workshop. So what is what are our questions? Um, and we were very lucky to have two workshops at the National Theatre Studio each of two weeks. So we really really came to understand the play through trying it through playing things out and we have a kind of form that we call jamming of, of improvisation where we improvise everything except the text effectively so sometimes we do that with with scripts and sometimes uh, further into a process we might do that um, without the script but using the structure of the scene so we've worked out the story the actors the know what story their character is trying to play what they're trying to achieve and we and we play it through using modern language. We didn't do quite so much of that with Edward II. We did a lot more of that with the, with the changeling. Um, but we did, we did really tr kind of try to open up everything possible about the scenes other than the words. Um, so the words were sort of at the centre of it, but we hadn't discussed what they meant or what the psychological structure would be or what the act what the intentions of the characters would be or anything like that. We simply uh, got them to try bits of costume on that we borrowed from the prop store. We had a wonderful time with lots of rails of, of, uh, of uh, grand, gorgeous costumes, uh, medieval and Renaissance costumes, well, mostly medieval, um, that we had borrowed that we could, that the actors sort of threw on and that enabled a kind of freedom. We don't cut things because we think, oh, no one's going to understand that. We try and work out what it's, what it's doing there, even if it feels like it's not a fully worked through scene or it feels a bit saggy or it feels like it goes on for too long. Um, because we've discovered through that process that there are all sorts of things that's quite hard to read just when you're reading fast for a modern eye, because you're looking for different things when you're reading. Um, but also because you know, the language is not 
not our language. Um, and for example, with Measure for Measure, we discovered that this scene that seems completely incomprehensible when you first read it, it's a, a scene between some very low status characters and very high status characters. It's actually all about some extremely rude jokes that are so rude that they're not even glossed in the um, in the you know in the notes underneath. And the, the whole scene is structured around who understands the joke and who doesn't. So the low status characters are taking the piss out of the high status characters. One of whom understands the joke and is trying to mediate it, and the other doesn't get it. He knows he's not he knows he's not getting the joke. Um, and it's all about the play, you know, Measure for Measure is all about sexual licentiousness and control. And this scene absolutely expresses that. It wasn't, but it's not even, it's not even possible to understand that from reading it and looking at the, at the notes. You can't come at it from a sort of academic perspective very easily. Um, whereas actually playing it in lots of different ways. I think we sort of said, let's, why don't you all pretend you're a character from The Wire? <laughs> <laughs> and it totally unlocked the scene. It was brilliant. So, so from the workshops where we played with all of it and all the different bits, then we started to say, okay, we're going to. We now understand what the what really matters. We were very much thinking about the the circular form in um, in the Olivier. We also knew that we wouldn't be using the revolve. So that at first seemed like it presented a series of challenges. But actually, I'm really glad that um, we don't. We don't really use any of the of of the capacity of the Olivier for machinery. We fly a curtain in and out, and that's more or less it. I mean, the Olivier is an extraordinary space. It feels very. It feels built to be public, and I think brilliantly, Edward II is about the. Um, a kind of blurring of public and private that, that other people find unacceptable. Or that what is the acceptable? What is acceptable for a king? What is, how, what's the role of a king? A king is a public figure. So it's brilliant. In the Olivier, it's perfect. Um, and we use live relay on video uh, quite considerably. We've sort of extended the concrete of the Olivier a little further so that we can use it as, um, as screens. And um, uh, and I'm sort of fascinated by, by the way that intimate moments are suddenly writ large on these screens, but the public figure of Edward is quite small on the Olivier stage, and so the sort of the sort of some of the inappropriateness that uh, Marlowe is interested in uh, in terms of a of a um, mismatch between public and private desire is played out through the through the very form of that theatrical space. I think we wanted all the video to have, have forms that we might recognise. Um, so that, in a sense, we're just using it as another language, another theatrical language. And so there's a sort of element of quotation there. But we, we had a ransom video so a, uh, in, the, in the original. Uh, Mortimer the Elder is kidnapped by the Scots. And we shot the video in the car park of the National. And it looked brilliant um, and it was modelled on the kinds of um, videos of um, executions and uh, and so on that you see and and so that quotation of that uh, of that um, I don't like to call it aesthetic but form in which we're, with which we're kind of familiar sort of brings the violence home home to you and we because you know the sort of plethora of images that we have kind of can flatten out violence because everything's equal you can click on that video or that video or, 
or that video. So the video is sort of like a, a sort of root into the hidden, in, in a sense, but sort of writ large on the, on the stage. Marlowe isn't at all interested in location. So there are many, many place names in the original, and we took a lot of them out. We haven't taken all of them out, but most of them. Um, because I think we felt there might be a bit of a distraction if you're going, oh, how did you get from Tynemouth to Bristol? <laughs> <laughs> because in um, in medieval times, the king and the court moved from city to city. It was actually a bit of a nightmare, as well as being a great honour, if the king decided to come stay at your manor. Because basically, all the food would be eaten, all the ale would be drunk, <laughs> and, then they, and then the court would move on and you'd be left <laughs> stripped bare. So I think the... Um, well, and Edward's, uh, Edward Marlowe stays quite close to um, the history in that respect. So he sets things, but he's not interested in the location. The, the action is absolutely continuous. And so we, so we really played on that. We, quite, we like the idea that it officially, or in history, takes place over 20 years. But in the way he's written it and in our production, it feels like it's happening in a matter of maybe weeks at most. And um, also because, it's, because the play, and I think these Renaissance plays are really fundamentally don't tell the story via place uh, or design in the way, you know, setting in the way that um, the in the way that modern plays might do. And so we actually wanted to create an environment for the acting and the the actors that would best support the psychological structure of the relationships between the characters, because it seemed to us that that's what the play is about. So this sort of, the, the costumes that they have are all about expressing power or status or, um, and it's quite playful because it's a mixture of medieval and, and modern, but effectively we're kind of taking what's to hand. So those workshops in which we borrowed props and costumes from the, from the National Theatre prop store, became the kind of currency of the production because in the play, you know, Edward keeps giving Gaveston new titles and he, and he tries to, to, to use the capacity to give out titles to win the barons over and, um, and so on. And that seemed like a brilliant language that actually everything is about power that they might wear or, or use, um, but it can e as equally be taken away or destroyed. I think I'm always questioning and researching ways of making theatre effectively, and some of that has a more sort of academic dimension. Well, I've been working with a Shakespeare scholar um, called Raphael Line and an experimental psychologist called Greg Davies. We did a series of Renaissance scenes from different plays to do with ghosts. So we're looking at um, consciousness and um, what Greg calls theory of mind, which is that it turns out through his experiments, they'd always thought that you, you took in data and then perception was a higher order kind of brain function that then you would interpret it and have an opinion about something. Um, and what they've discovered is that one of the sort of lower order respons reflex responses in your visual attention um, only happens under certain circumstances. If someone suddenly looks in another direction, then your eyes will flick to that space as well. It's just a reflex. But if you think that person is blind, then it doesn't, it's not, it operates a little bit, but it's not as strong. So you have to believe that that person is seeing before that reflex kicks in, which I find completely fascinating. So one thing is that, that theatre, of course, is absolutely shaped by where we look and where the actors look and um, you know, magic. You know, it's sort of the magic of theatre, and the illusion is entirely produced by that, and and um, and how we're encouraged to kind of 
um, you know, watch a certain group of people and that switches and moves. So I'm sort of interested in it from that respect. One of the things the experiments showed that was that, that was a real key for me when we were looking at these ghost scenes in Renaissance plays was that they're not written for all the characters on stage to all be continuously psychologically present. So a modern acting rehearsal form or technique is that all the actors have attitudes and intentions and objectives and they play their character as a, a you know, fully psychological being all the way through. I mean, it's just, you know, it makes sense. It's like, well, that's how we think <laughs> now. Whereas the rhetorical structure of some of these plays, the, the subjectivity switches. So who's really thinking? So Hamlet is thinking and Hamlet is a, is a person and Gertrude is in his vision, effectively. But she's not we're not thinking about whether she's thinking or not, but then it switches and, and then it switches back again. So this rhetorical structure, and Marlowe is similar, isn't, is less about the whole picture. We're not watching the relationship between, necessarily between two characters, but we might be watching how this character is responding to the people around them. Um, which means that, for example, you often have characters come on stage just like that for no reason, and then suddenly they're in the scene, and then that's fine, and you carry on. But for a modern actor, it's like, well, why, why am I coming on here? <laughs> and often they're named previously by a previous character. I'm a, um, just starting work on a production of Arden of Fathersham for the RSC with Polly Finley, who did Antigone here at the NT. And, um, and it's fascinating. There's a, there's a scene early on where, uh, where the character Mosby says, oh, yes, we need to talk to the painter Clark. And about two lines later, the painter Clark rocks up on stage. <laughs> not because he's been phoned up and invited to come in, not for any reason. Um, you know, in our modern sort of thinking structure, we would provide a reason for the actor to come on, come on stage at that point, for that character, I mean. Um, Whereas that doesn't seem to be necessary in these, in these plays. So thinking about atten attention in that way helped me to understand that the way that we structure modern drama and the way we expect to watch it is really different from how those, these plays were structured then, that then has a very strong effect on my work as dramaturg in practical terms. But then at the same time, the practical work has a big effect on the, the research because I think the re with theatre and, and performance, we're so, com we're so dependent on the vagaries of real life, on people's moods, on things going right or wrong, uh, on calibrating the energies of an audience, on um, you know, critical opinion at any given point in time. And most work is being orientated to, in many ways towards all, all of those things. And um, I'm, uh, I think that's really important because something that within an academic context you might think was a, a, an intellectual decision might just be a practical one because one person wasn't available and somebody else was, for example, or, um, or something like that. And understanding that contingency changes the way that you think about the practice, which I think really, for me, informs any research that I might, that I might do. And, and it helps read these plays as well. It makes us less reverent, I think. We're not going to be, oh, it's all a final dis perfect decision. We go with theatre makers, they're theater they were theatre makers. <laughs> you know, it's all it's all up for grabs in a sense.